LARP Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radio hour. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on this week's show, we have a little bit of shop talk as we're talking with Dan Sinekin about his recent book, Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. As that title suggests, the book explores how consolidation ushered in a new wave of corporatization among book publishers from the 1970s to the present, and that tectonic shift, which many of us have kind of been either a direct part of or a sidelines observer of. Witnessed. Uh, yeah, exactly. Has like shaped and reshaped many of the genres, writers, and careers that are ascendant in today's publishing landscape. Yeah. And as you know, Medea, like, I will love basically anything that looks at publishing as an industry because I love what we kind of pull off the dewy lenses through which I think we're kind of more accustomed to thinking about how books are written, edited, and then kind of sent out into the world. So right. obviously I was instantly on board. Yeah. And I was thinking of it as a follow-up to the conversation that we had with Lisa Lucas and Christian Lawrenson a few months ago about the state of the industry. And this seemed like a, a very seamless follow-up to that because Dan really covers the history of what has happened over the past 60 years or so and how things have really changed. And yeah, I totally agree. You know, I think you, or at least for me, like I came out of college, went into publishing for a little while and that veneer, that dewy veneer of (laughs) literature is just sort of springing forth into being (laughs) a sort of magical fairy process pretty quickly stripped away (laughs) and it was revealed to be a business. And, you know, I think that business is very much worth talking about and figuring out how it works because it does affect the way we read, certainly, but also really even the way people write um, and and what gets published. So Dan, Dan is here to, to lift to the curtain and reveal Oz. (laughs) Exactly. And actually, that's a great metaphor, because it is kind of like there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that kind of we see as the audience or readers. But, you know, behind there's a whole system of like ropes and pulleys that kind of push, you know, some of our favorite authors there. And, you know, while a lot of the early parts, and Dan says this in our interview, you know, he cites both of these books, they have been kind of covered, that kind of 1970s, 80s, and 90s has been covered by books like John Thompson's Magnificent Merchants of Culture, and also in a different way, kind of by Mark McGurl's The Program Era. What I really liked about Dan's book is that it kind of brings us up to date, not only with the the kind of rise of Amazon as a world ordering force, not only in publishing books, but in also book sales, but also kind of thinking about, especially towards the end of his book, like thinking about how social media and the internet kind of reshaped this industry, you know, niche genres like fanfic, for example, that are now totally mainstream, I would say probably similarly like young adult, as well as how kind of self-promotion on social media has become the lifeblood of new authors that can't just be, you know, kind of 
promoted by editors, they have to come to editors and publishers already as self-promoting machines, which is, I think, very different. I mean, an author in some ways is always self-promoting, but it's very, very different, certainly, than like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Right. Yeah. And Dan was just in an featured in an Esquire piece by Kate Dwyer about whether, you know, writers can maintain a livelihood if being a writer is really a career or a job that one can <laughs> expect any money from. The answer obviously is no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what <laughs> but, our parents told us, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. And somewhere we we really took a wrong turn. Um, but so Dan is in is mentioned and his research is cited at length in this Esquire piece of people want to also explore explore further whether they should go into the humanities and become a writer or not. Yeah. And, you know, what's also crazy is that we interviewed Dan a little while ago for the show that listeners are about to hear. But there's been big news just in late last month, right, that Simon & Schuster was officially sold. And I wish we could have talked to him about that. And what's also crazy to me is this was a huge deal in publishing after almost a year ago, actually right now, in early November 2022, Penguin Random House was trying to acquire Simon & Schuster, and that deal was scuttled by the US government on antitrust grounds. And then it was recently sold, and it seemed like there was no news about it. (laughs) So it's kind of wild to me, or it just didn't come over my transom, I guess. It's not that it wasn't being covered, but, you know, it just is, it is a reminder, I think, of the importance of books like Dan's in kind of charting this history and trying to show us kind of where publishing has been, what it's struggling with now and where it might go in the future. Yeah, well put. Should we get to that interview? Let's do it. Today we're joined by writer and critic Dan Sinekin. Dan is also an assistant professor of English at Emory University, and he is the author of American Literature and the Long Downturn, Neoliberal Apocalypse. His writing has also appeared in the Washington Post, the LA Review of Books, and other publications. His new book is called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry, which chronicles the many changes the publishing industry has undergone in the past 50 years starting in 1965, when Random House was bought by an electronics company. Since then, we've seen the radical conglomeration of publishing as small independent publishing houses were bought up by multinational corporations, slowly forming what we now know as the Big Five. Dan writes about the way these changes affected the industry, including what editors buy, what readers expect, and even what writers write. He covers everything from the rise of mass market paperbacks to the establishment of prestigious nonprofits hoping to protect literature from the market. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Dan, I just want to start in the broadest way possible at the beginning of the book, where you kind of mark not necessarily the start of the conglomeration era itself, because that starts earlier, but rather this emblematic moment when you start to see its clearest effects. And that moment is the ouster of André Schifrin at Pantheon Books in February 1990. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit for our listeners about who André Schifrin was and why his ouster seems to suggest such a sea change initiated by the conglomeration era. So Andre Schifrin was this 
fantastic editor and publisher who had a long career in the industry. And his career touched many different aspects of the industry. So he got his very first start in the mass market sector of publishing at New American Library, where he was briefly before he went to Pantheon, which his father had co-founded. And he went to Pantheon in the 60s and spent a couple decades there, published a great list of writers, including E.P. Thompson. Studs Terkel was one of his mainstays, was one of the first people, if not the first, to introduce Michel Foucault to the United States at Pantheon. And then Pantheon was in the 60s, an early part of the conglomeration of publishing when it was purchased up by Random House. So it was under Random House for many years. But Random House's president for those years was a guy named Robert Bernstein, who was beloved and did everything he could to protect Random House from its parent companies, its conglomerate owners. So eventually, Random House, his owner, Cy Newhouse in the 80s, decided that there needed finally to be more of a business orientation at Random House's imprints. And so he fired Bob Bernstein and hired Alberto Vital to come in and bring more of a financial edge to what was happening at Knopf, Random House, Pantheon, and so forth, which were all within Random House. Now, when you talk about how Vitali is trying to basically get the finances in order for Random House, this does not mean that Random House is hemorrhaging money. It just means that they are not as profitable as Vitali and others, the board, as it were, believe that it could be. Is that correct? That's right. So one of the key things that happens under conglomeration in publishing is the introduction of quarterly growth demands. And this takes a lot of time because in the 60s and 70s, the first conglomerates that start buying up publishing houses in that period often have a bit of a hands-off approach. And it's not until the 80s that, and this is in part having to do with much broader trends in corporate history, the rising hegemony of shareholder value, and the movement from in the 50s and 60s, the idea that you have these big, large corporations like U.S. Steel or General Electric or the Ford Motor Company that are, you know, kind of produce a social good to companies being only these sort of fictions meant to increase value for shareholders. And so that comes about in the 70s, 80s, and that's when you start getting these top-down demands for quarterly growth, which, you know, quarterly growth demands in the publishing industry don't work together super well. It's a really chaotic industry that is not super predictable, though there are ways that it has been made more predictable by conglomeration. So to come all the way back around to the story about Andre Schifrin, right. And also, here's something that's funny. I'm a scholar, so I spend a lot of my time in my office with books. And I'm not, I did do actually more interviews than most academics do for this book, but I'm mostly reading names. So I often don't know how to pronounce the names. I don't know if it's Vitaly or Vital. I just, I think because of the sports commentator, Dick Vital, I just mm, say, okay. I, I say Vital. So Alberto Vital, but it could be Vitaly. I have no idea. Comes in and says, look, 
Pantheon is not making a lot of money. You're subsidizing some books with other books. I want to see every book make uh, profit. There's this, these tussles between Schifrin and Vital, and very quickly, within a couple months, Vital fires Schifrin, which creates this huge drama in the industry that ripples out everywhere. And to the point that you have Kurt Vonnegut and Studs Terkel and the doctor writer who, man who mistook his wife for a hat, Oliver Sacks, are out in the street with a couple hundred other people, you know, demanding that Schifrin be rehired. And everyone knows what this is about. Everyone knows that Schifrin's firing is a stand-in for a conglomeration really closing in, its jaws tightening, and the relative autonomy, the limited freedom that literary types think that they have, they see going away, and Schifrin is the sign that this process that has been going on gradually already for 30 years is maybe getting really dangerous. Dan, as you mentioned, you're a scholar, and I was curious, what brought you to writing about this? And I think this is maybe a good way to get into how this affects fiction and our understanding of what literature has become. But what brought you to writing about the conglomeration of the publishing industry, which on its own sounds really boring, you know? <laughs> it does. And when, and when I started, started working on this and started telling people about it, people would like their eyes would glaze over and they'd be like, you know, they just wouldn't be interested. And I was like, oh man, I got some work to do to try to convince anyone that this is worth paying attention to. I should say the book is not at all boring. It's really, it's actually very, very interesting and very much builds like a, a drama in a lot of ways. And I think even for people who aren't interested in publishing as an industry, it would be very engaging. Yeah, but I wonder how, why you started thinking about this. Yeah, so there's two answers to that question. One is personal and one is professional. So the professional reason is that I was trained in my graduate work as a scholar of economics and literature. And... 20th and 21st century American literature in particular. And that came out in my dissertation in my first book in a more abstract way in a tradition following the work of Frederick Jameson, where I was connecting larger changes in the global macro economy to trends that were happening in literature. And as I was doing that, I was getting into the archives and papers of some writers. And I started to see that there was a much more local level at which economics and publishing was affecting the kinds of things they were doing. And that was having to do with their relationship with agents and editors and changes that were happening in publishing. And that became an interesting story to me about economics and literature. And the other, the personal reason is I wanted to know why the books that shaped me, I've lived a life of books. Why were these books, the books that ended up in my hands? Why did my dad read to me The Lord of the Rings when I was six? Why did I end up reading Piers Anthony as a tween? Why was I reading, you know, Gravity's Rainbow as a 17-year-old and so on and so forth? And like, why these books and why not other books? And kind of the grander way of putting that is like, why do we have the world of books that we have and not any other world of books? Like the book world could look a million kinds of ways, but it looks like just the way we have it. There are reasons it looks this way. And so I decided to follow the money. Yeah, it's so interesting. It makes me, I, just as a personal sort of aside, I grew up in the Soviet Union, partly. And then only when I was much older did I realize that the books that my parents valued, which were really bizarre to me, they were, you know, not, otherwise not books that I had really studied or were was interested in, like Jerome Jerome. Do you guys know that writer? 
huge, huge in the USSR. <laughs> He's an English writer, and I had read one of his books because my parents were so dedicated to him. And, you know, eventually because that, that is easy to explain. It is one of the politically acceptable English language books that was allowed to be taught in schools. And it's much more complicated in the U.S., as I think you point out. And I think harder to think, well, why, why did I get the books that I got? Because it seems like, well, there's a free market. You could have gotten anything. That was your personal choice. But you're very much correct in that, no, of course, there's systems in place that form the way that we read, even when we're kids. Exactly. Yeah, I don't believe in meritocracy in any other realm. So why would I think, <laughs> even though it's a market-based system, why would I believe that the best books make it to the top? Yes, right, right, right. Yeah, that really makes sense. So why don't we start as, also in terms of where you got started? How did you begin to approach this really big question? Yeah, it is really big. I started out big myself, I guess. Like I, I wrote a kind of hypothesis or pracy, a kind of essay where I tried to tease out what I thought some of the big trends might be. And I did this very early on in like 2017. And that was a couple years out of grad school. I kind of had this idea bouncing around my head and I wanted to get it down on paper. I tried it out at a conference. I tried it out as a job talk for a tenure track job and I bombed <laughs> because it was like early, early when I was trying it out and I hadn't, that ideas weren't tested, which is a really bad idea when you're doing a job talk for a tenure track job because people will assail you. And I hadn't received the questions before. And so I didn't have good answers to them. I mean, I learned a lot and I think I got a lot better afterwards, but oof, it was, that was really hard when I just, you know, so I tried out the ideas there and then I ended up writing an essay that was published in this academic journal called Contemporary Literature that's called The Conglomerate Era is the name of that essay. And I brought together a couple ideas about that end up in the book, like that, editors' jobs changed, that agents became necessary, that what those things meant, that the changing of an editor's job represented the rationalization, to use a term that's a Max Weber term about like the bureaucratization and centrality of the bottom line in business, like an editor's job, like from the, the 50s to the 90s, became about becoming this kind of archetype of rationalization. And the agent became this archetype of mediation, or the kind of like, archetype of the market, kind of arranging how things make it between the writer and the publishing house, and that this had certain effects, namely for literary fiction, literary genre fiction, and autofiction. That essay was an early attempt to try to say, like, oh, is this working? And maybe I can get some feedback and see what people think and learn from how that goes. So that was what I did first. I want to return. I think that the 80s, actually, the 80s and 90s are one of the most interesting periods in this book and in the kind of history that it covers. And that's not to say that there's not really interesting and tectonic shifts that are happening in the 60s and 70s, for sure there are. But the 80s, at least as a decade, marks this kind of ascendance of genre fiction. And so that's going to be really important and that launches the careers, in fact, of, you know, Daniel Steele. You talk a lot about Daniel Steele. It's amazing. And there's always that great, I have always loved Janice Radway's writing about like the development of the romance novel. What is that? Reading the romance. It's just so smart. It's older, but it's it's so perfect. And seeing how you kind of weave the Daniel Steele of it all in there. But it's also true for, you know, people who have become, and I think this is part of it, they've become multimedia industries in and of themselves. So those would be people we primarily met as writers first, which would be Stephen King, Dean Koontz, for example. 
And one of the things I want to try to tease out is both like how and why genre fiction arises to such commercial acclaim in this moment, but also how you know, when you say things before, for example, like the mass market, right? In the 50s and 60s, those can be like these kind of yellow novels, like especially during the mid-century period with, you know, writers like Patricia Highsmith, those would have been these kind of mass market paperback novels that later are reclaimed kind of by the Academy, usually as works of, of high fiction, you know, high literary fiction. So what is the mass market that we know before the 80s and then the mass market paperback that we start to see, you know, those kind of very popular, they were like $7.95. I distinctly remember them. All of the Michael Crichton books that would be in the 90s, but Stephen King, Danielle Steele, they're priced very low. And what's the difference between those and why does genre become so important in the 80s, distinct from the earlier period? Yeah, I love this question and I love this story. So you got to go back to before 1939, before the 1940s, books were actually kind of hard to get if you were not in a major metropolitan area in the United States. Bookstores were like relatively sparse and people would read pulp magazines. Those were what were widely distributed to railway stations and drugstores. And this has to do with the underlying distribution networks. There wasn't a great distribution network for books, but there was for magazines. And so you have genres starting to circulate and form as genres, science fiction, mystery, Western romance, through pulp magazines in the 1920s and 1930s. And then you get this guy named Robert DeGraff in 1939, who brings this idea, actually started just a few years earlier in the United Kingdom by Alan Lane as Penguin Books. Penguin started as this mass market book in the UK. And then it comes to the United States as pocketbooks. And it takes off. And it takes off in part because the timing is exactly right. Immediately after the war, you've got all these people coming, soldiers coming back, who like the soldiers were sent. There were hundreds of thousands, or not millions of books sent to American soldiers during World War II. These pocketbooks, and these are these small that you're talking about, Eric, these small kind of, they can fit in your pocket. They're cheaply made. They sell cheaply. That format, that's what we're talking about when we talk about mass market books. They were sent out to soldiers and then soldiers came back and there was the GI Bill. And so all these soldiers, we have the massive expansion of the university system in the United States, not only for soldiers on the GI Bill, but you also start having colleges and universities being more inclusive of women and people of color. And so you have like a ton of readers and you have a booming economy right? So all of this is happening. You've got all these readers, all this money. You've got these mass market houses just start appearing all over the place. And for the first time, books are just this ubiquitous commodity that are being circulated on the mass market through the same distribution networks as the pulps. So they're going to railway stations and drugstores, not necessarily to bookstores. And the thing is, what you have happen is you have this kind of closing of this gap between there's not this super big gap between popular and prestigious literature at the time, like whether it's Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus, you know, or a little later, Portnoy's Complaint, or, you know, James Baldwin, Norman Mailer, whatever, and like Jacqueline Susan's Valley of the Dolls, or like, you know, Mickey Spillane, or whatever stuff that's considered trashier, they're all like getting sent out, like 
Faulkner becomes kind of a, a popular writer at this point in time because like his smuttier books like Sanctuary are sent out. Like, you know, all of them get slapped with the mass market model. It gets slapped with the smutty cover and sent around. And so there's not this big distinction between that we live with now between the Stephen King and Daniel Steele's and the, you know, Zadie Smith and Teju Coles or whatever. Everything was kind of in the same bucket. So this begins to change with conglomeration in the 70s. And what happens in the 70s is a number of really crucial things that shape how books work to this day. So one of those things is the profit motive that we were talking about. These conglomerate businesses are buying up all these independent presses and asking them to sell more books and make more profit. But at the same time, that post-war boom is declining. You have inflation you have unemployment, so you have stagflation in the 70s. You have wage stagnation beginning. So there's less, people have less money in their pocket at the same time for you know leisure goods in general, at the same time that these companies are supposed to be making more money. So this creates a problem for the editors and publishers who are like, well, how can I find a way to have a more consistent profit that I'm being demanded by my bosses? And this is at the same time that we're seeing a transformation of how wholesaling and retailing works, which is really crucial. There's a a whole revolution where up until the 70s, bookstores would essentially order all their books straight from publishers. And this was really an inconsistent way and a slow way to get their books. And this new Ingram, this new wholesaling company, figured out that they could build massive warehouses and radically make more efficient getting books to booksellers, which made it much easier to become a bookseller. And so bookstores started popping up in a lot more places, including in the growing suburban malls. So this is when you get B. Dalton and Walden books. So B. Dalton and Walden books start growing throughout the 70s, creating this kind of pipeline where you can get these suburban malls. Who's in the suburban malls? You have moms and their kids. Okay, so now you've got this sort of pipeline to an audience So with all the infrastructure in place, the publishers needing to sell more books and trying to find the readers who will pay for them, suddenly publishers are like, there are two strategies that are going to work with these chain bookstores. One, we're going to invest in these blockbuster brand names who will become brands unto themselves who we can rely on to sell book after book after book. So this is when Stephen King sells his first book, Carrie, in 74. And Danielle Steele has a few books before her publisher decides to make her a superstar in 1978. And there are, as you said, Eric, a few others who rise along with them, like Michael Crichton, Dean Koontz. But publishers throw all of their marketing power, and marketing departments are swelling, behind these few names so that they know that they can count on those few names to sell time after time after time. And there's one flip side thing that they also do. Rather than paying the big advances to the big names, they pay tiny advances to people with no names, hack writers, to write genre books. And that's why the 80s are the decade that romance explodes and fantasy explodes. All of a sudden, you're seeing, if you were a kid in the 80s, I was was born in 83, so I wasn't quite seeing this stuff until the 90s, but it was carrying on through the 90s and in fact through today, now on Wattpad and KDP and everywhere else romance and fantasy done as hack book volumes that can sell because people know the genre. Those start filling B. Dalton and Walden Books and later Barnes Noble and Borders. It seems like that change 
that dual change that you're talking about also brings about some of the glitz and glamour of the 80s and those big names and something that I'd like to also bring into this conversation, which is the big role that publicity suddenly starts to play in the publishing industry. Can you talk about that? Like who, it's a good story, like who started it? How did publicity grow into this huge part of the industry? And how do we get to where we sort of are now? Yeah, in the 60s, publishers might have like a couple of publicity girls, they would say in the sexist lingo of the time. (laughs) And it was a gender job. It tended to be more likely that men would be editors and women would be publicists and marketers. And it it was not a job that was prestigious. It was not a job that a lot of resources were given to. And that changed in the 70s. The 70s was the decade that the women who worked in publicity, marketing, and subsidiary rights suddenly started to rise. And that started to really reach a kind of peak at the end of the 70s, early 80s, when these women in marketing and sales and subsidiary rights started doing these campaigns for these brand name authors and making, bringing in huge amounts of money. And then the parent companies, the people running, the presidents and publishers of these places would see you know, where the money was coming from and want to give power to those people. So you have a figure like Jane Friedman at Random House, who is a, a fantastic character and, you know, a wonderful promoter and wonderful self-promoter who loved to tell people that she invented the author tour, which is a little bit of a, a fudge of the historical record, but she did play a role in that. And she goes on to be the CEO of HarperCollins. And this happens with a lot of these these folks who start in subsidiary rights, marketing and publicity, is they go, they start in these jobs when they're not prestigious in the 60s and 70s. And by the 90s and aughts, they're the ones running the whole show. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Dan Sinekin, author of Big Fiction, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. I have Dorothea Lasky on the line. Her most recent collection of poetry is called The Shining, and she's here to give me a book recommendation. Yes. So I brought in two books. Neither one are hot off the press, (laughs) but uh, I hope that's okay. Since time is cyclical, they were hot off the press at one point. So so I know we're talking about horror and, you know, The Shining and, and terrifying narratives. So I thought I'd recommend, you know, in this kind of late fall, crispy November air, this book, Eileen by Otessa Mashveg. Not, not hot off the press, uh, <laughs> but not so far in the past. And yeah, I really love it because I love, I know we talked a lot about time and the perspective perspective of the future and like I love a character that's flawed and that is like I guess unlikable or potentially immoral but you can't help but kind of love them or be like attracted to them in some way and I think that this book is that and so I know that Eileen might not be lovable but I love her in some ways yeah And then I'd also like to recommend going back in time, HD's Hermetic Definition. And I'm just a longtime HD fan. 
I love her poetry. I love its mystical, supernatural kind of horror properties. I love its like repetition and its like tightness. And I'm always looking to it like in that kind of mystical turn, like the way she turns her lines and holds on to like a particular image or a particular word and makes it like almost transform into something else. It's like alchemical in that way and so so I thought it'd be a good November recommendation Hermetic Definition by HD and I also think it's just so great that her name is HD and the book is Hermetic Definition there's just something (laughs) really funny about that to me so amazing great can you tell us the two books again the titles and the authors Okay, so the first book is Eileen by Otessa Moshvig and Hermetic Definition by H.D. Sounds great. Sympathetic yet unsympathetic narrator and a mystical poet. Perfect pairing. (laughs) Yes, perfect pairing for November. Thank you so much, Dorothea. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Dorothea Lasky. Her new book of poems is called The Shining. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Dan Sinekin, author of Big Fiction. And we also talk about the other side of this. And this is a little bit getting into what you had teased before is the absolutely chaotic nature of publishing, which many people do not understand exactly what a robbing Peter to pay Paul model publishing is built on. And to just like circle back to one thing before, I wanted to ask whether or not this transformation in distribution, so when you start to get the Ingrams of the world moving in, is that when we get the concept of returns? So the idea that publishers can send a bunch of books to a store, and this is something that I think many consumers do not know. So A store like a Barnes & Noble or an Amazon in today's parlance will buy a whole bunch of books. If they don't sell those, they will send them back to the publisher and there's a credit. So there's this constant like money coming in, but then money going out, usually in the form of a weird credit that then impacts other money coming in. And all of this money is moving back and forth over months. So it's truly unlike any other media industry. And so I'm curious about that. And then the thing that I wanted to lead to is, is this era of the 1980s that we've been talking about, is that when we see the rise of the literary agent who is effectively a broker between the author, artist, and the publisher? Yeah. So that question about returns, I can't remember off the top of my head when exactly that happened. I think it had to do with something legal. Like I think there was a law that passed that made that happen. It might've been in the late seventies or early eighties, but yeah, it's, it makes it, it's complicated for everybody because it becomes publishers have really bad records in part because stuff is coming in and out and no one really knows how much any book sells. And so, and you know, publishers have gotten better at this in the last couple of decades with digitization and stuff. But like you go back to the sixties and seventies and eighties, like it's just chaos. Italo Calvino has like a description in I Found Winner's Night a Traveler of like a publisher where everything's in just total disarray. <laughs> and I read that and I was like, that's the most accurate description of a publishing house I've ever seen. So that's that. But the literary agent, yeah, that 
that was a happening alongside the rise of marketing and publicity and subsidiary rights in the 70s. And a couple of the big names there are Morton Janklo on the more popular side and Andrew Wiley on the more prestigious side. And the Morton Janklo story is great. I love this guy. This guy is a nutcase. So this guy, he's not a literary guy at all. He worked. A, he was a lawyer who worked in corporate securities. And he was buddies with William Sapphire, who was speechwriter for President Nixon. Sapphire wrote a book about the Nixon administration that he wanted to sell before Watergate. And then Watergate happened, the book hadn't come out yet. And his publishers were like, well, you know, and the book was like, you know, somewhat supportive of it was like pro Nixon kind of and his publishers were like, well, maybe we don't want to publish your book. And so he's like, hey, Mort, do you think you can like squeeze these publishers? And Janklow found out that he could squeeze the publishers. And it was the first time anyone had really tried to fight on an author's behalf, like see how much sway an author could have in terms of their rights with a publishing house. And Janklow like got a little thrill out of this. And he's like, oh, there's like this huge uncharted territory of defending authors and fighting for authors' rights that they've been just taken advantage of by publishers. And so as more people start asking Morton Janklow to represent them, and Morton Janklow starts winning all these fights against publishers, and that starts changing everyone's understanding of what a literary agent can do and should be. And literary agents, like what it means to be a literary agent transforms into this kind of like ally and defender of authors against the rapacious demands of publishing houses. But that also means what happens is you start getting crazy advances and, you know, auctions and all this stuff is a result of Morton Janklow realizing he can squeeze Sapphire's publisher. I was struck to hear about the role that agents in the shaping of the work, because now editors have so many other tasks that they have to be doing, that agents, in effect, really work as editors for a lot of the time. Can you tell us about some of the other you know, I think the agents are such fun characters here. Some of the other agents that have played a big role in the in this conglomerate era, as you're calling it. Sure. Yeah. So Andrew Wiley would be the counterpart to Morton Janklow. If Morton Janklow is working with your Daniel Steeles, he's working with your Judith Krantz, you know, he's working with your kind of popular brand name writers selling in those big numbers. Andrew Wiley's working with your Philip Roths, your Selman Rushdies, your, you know, Nobel Prize winners. And so Wiley, Roth was one of the first writers to learn that he can, rather than kind of being loyal to one editor throughout his career, that he should just kind of follow the money and jump from place to place. And he was Roger Strauss at Fair Strauss and Drew did manage to steal him away for a, a period of time in the basis for the 70s, 70s and early 80s. It might have been when he was doing his Nathan Zuckerman under Roger Strauss and Fair Strauss and Drew is one of these places that hold, like, I love the story of this press, too. They hold out from conglomeration for years. Roger Strauss is this fascinating character. He really wanted to have Philip Roth around. So he has Philip Roth around. And under FSG, Roth writes his most FSG-type books that all culminates in what I think is his very best book, The Counterlife, which is this kind of dizzying postmodern story where FSG also is the house of Susan Sontag and Grace Paley and Donald Bartlemay. But then Andrew Wiley's like, you know, FSG is this independent house. They really actually don't have that much money. They had famously sort of like 
shitty offices in Union Square that was like everything falling apart. He's like, why don't we get you like a bigger payday? And I think that was when Dick Snyder, who is a giant asshole, who was the president of Simon and Schuster and an enemy of Roger Strauss, like worked with Andrew Wiley and Andrew Wiley worked with, with Snyder to get Roth to leave for Simon and Schuster. And Strauss was pissed off. Roth is kind of this like peripheral character pops up across my book. I never give him the full treatment, but he shows up in these strange ways where like I tell the story of this writer who used to be really well known in the seventies and eighties, but people don't know a lot about anymore named Alison Lurie. Mm-hmm. Um, she won one of the big awards, the NBA or the Pulitzer for foreign affairs. And she was really close friends with Philip Roth. And I happened to be in Ithaca where she lived in 2018 and was going to look at our archival papers. And I figured, well, why not just like see if she talked to me? And so like she was like 92 and she invited me into her home and made me tea and had just come back the day before from Philip Roth's funeral. And uh, she told this story about how, you know, she was in Philip Roth's like apartment. He was dead, newly dead. And he still had a plant stand sitting there in the corner with Saul Bellow's hat that Saul Bellow had worn to the Nobel Prize ceremony. Roth, thinking of his dying day, he was going to wear Bellow's hat when he went to the Nobel ceremony. (laughs) That feels very, that feels very particularly Roth. I think let's keep in the Alison Lurie because I think she's she's a really interesting example of the way that, I mean, there's many in the book, but of the way that women, the roles that women played, we sort of touched upon this, but the roles that women played in the publishing industry, both as writers, publicists, sometime executives, sometimes secretaries, and the sort of different demands that were made on them and the ways in which they were allowed to do certain things and not allowed to do certain others. It's sort of a big question, I know, but could you talk a little bit about that weird, the weird role of of women in the publishing industry in this time? I don't think I realized the extent, I definitely did not realize the extent of the sexism that ran through the whole literary field, including publishing, and a lot of ways still does. Oh, still Um, does, still does. Absolutely. There were ways it was explicit in the 60s and 70s that I don't think people can quite get away with now. I might entirely be wrong about that. But I mean, some of the, the letters and things that I saw in the, the archives, the way that Bennett Cerf, who was the president of Random House, would write these insane letters to women, just sexualizing them. Like they'd write a normal letter to him and he'd write back with some like insane off the wall sexualization. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is, I can't believe Random House didn't pull this from the archive. This is so ridiculous. And he'd like go around and like Jane Friedman, the publicist I talked about earlier, who started at Random House when she was young. And, you know, he'd like go around and just like pull her ponytail and just like little stupid shit like that. And, you know, this is the guy who runs the company. So this is like the model that everyone is following. But so in the office place, like the sexual politics in the office place were profoundly sexist. And the expectations around, you know, what women's jobs were going to be, women were more likely to be to ask to do the work of like soothing egos of writers. There's a interesting letter where Roth's editor at the time, Joe Fox, who has become just this titan of this literary industry, um, Nan Talese, who started as an assistant editor at Random House and was working under Joe Fox with Roth in the early 60s. 
And uh, Fox and Roth were buddies. They eventually had this falling out because Roth wanted to switch to a different editor, Jason Epstein. And there was these incredibly emotional, dramatic letters between Fox and Roth. But they wouldn't, like, Fox wouldn't, like, do this stuff to, like, carefully soothe Roth's massive ego. So he would have Nantalese do that. And so Nantalese would write these letters, like, going on and on about all the ways that she was doing this care work for Roth's manuscripts. And that's typical of how the work women were asked to do, the emotional work that women were asked to do in these houses. And this also had profound ramifications for the kind of books that women could write. Women novelists were expected to be writing, you know, romance or mysteries, you know, sentimental fiction. They weren't expected to be writing the big prize-winning literary serious work. And if they were doing it, like there was an expectation, like that was gendered masculine. And the language that was used by people like Roth and Fox and Epstein was like, you know, it ought to be like a man's writing. Like the standard of literary writing is standard of men's writing. And if, oh, it's good if a woman can do it like a man, but that's the expectation that she has to reach. And so you have writers like the biggest, the women writers in the sixties and seventies at Random House who had the biggest success in terms of reaching the most book reviewers and getting the most hype and coverage were Renata Adler, Alison Lurie, and Elizabeth Hardwick, all three of whom, this was also an era of the 60s and 70s. Everyone, it was all about pure nepotism. The industry is still very nepotistic, but it's less, it's amazingly less nepotistic now than it was in the 60s and 70s. It was even more nepotistic then. And so, you know, Lurie like went to Harvard with Ed Gorey, who was buddies, and John Ashbery and Frank O'Hara, and they were all, and Barbara Zimmerman, who became Jason Epstein's wife, and so on and so forth. And Renata Adler ran in all these circles, and Elizabeth Hardwick ran in all these circles. And so, you know, everyone's connected to everyone. But anyway, these three women writers had the most success, but they had a, like, they were constrained by these demands. And especially in Adler, Adler's fiction, Speedboat and Pitch Dark, and in Hardwick's Sleepless Nights, you really see them like doing sensationally brilliant work with the form of the novel, trying to wrestle with like, what is it to be a serious woman writer doing fiction? And how can we, if the form of literary fiction, the literary novel is masculine, how can we like be ourselves, write what we want to write, evade those standards and kind of reinvent the novel in a way? And that's what I think Speedboat and Sleepless Nights do. This takes us in a slightly different but related direction, which is that, so as you have a lot of these writers, and as Dea points out, it's like also the gender of writers is being scrambled, you know, into a place where we have today where actually I believe the majority of editors in the publishing industry are women. Mm -hmm. And certainly the, the large majority, at least in literary fiction, I'd be curious how that shakes out across different genres, but that in literary fiction, the predominant gender is also women, right? So we have this shift. Mm -hmm. But to add like another thing to this mix is also about how complicated, and this is a little bit back to our conversation about agents, the book is less frequently today than it has been in the past considered the, let's call it the end exploitation of that IP to use very nerdy and insidery terms. So and I'm very curious, to me, this seems to start in the kind of maybe in the 80s, but especially in the 90s, where you have 
the model for the book is like the book itself becomes a bestseller. This is all mass market, but the book becomes a bestseller. And then it also turns into a hit film or a TV show or something like that. And nowhere can we see this probably more than the industries that develop around people like Michael Crichton, who listeners might know is the author of Jurassic Park, which has gone on to be a cottage industry of its own, but also a number of other ones, Rising Sun, you know, which to watch that and read that again from the vantage point of the present is insane. And John Grisham, you know, the kind of legal thrillers that also became, they were pulpy novels and then they became like very popular films. Was that a thing that happened uniquely during this period? And therefore like agents are also negotiating a wide variety of rights that we recognize today when we see many books that come out that already have, you know, some kind of film or TV development deal. Yeah, so there's an old story about the connection between the book industry and the movie industry that goes back before the conglomerate era. There's a scholar named Jordan Brower who's kind of doing interesting work on that. And if you look at one of my very favorite writers, Nathaniel West, author of Miss Lonely Hearts and Day of the Locust. Oh, yeah. Yes. L.A. writer. Yeah, yeah. And a failed movie writer, right? He was like a failed screenwriter. Yeah, I mean, I think he had some, you know, working paid jobs writing scripts. But F. Scott Fitzgerald was making his money out in Hollywood and William Faulkner, too. So, like, the connection between Hollywood and books is longstanding. It evolves, but it never, like, sinks in quite the way that you would think in terms of synergy because of the way that rights get broken out. So because someone like Morton Janklow comes in and says part of what he's doing is he said in the 70s is he's saying, oh, there's all these rights for us to fight over in contracts. And I, as an agent, on behalf of the author, want to keep some of these rights, these TV rights or movie rights or whatever other rights for us to sell. And so that means that the publishing company that buys it, which may be owned by the same conglomerate as a movie studio, doesn't necessarily just get to repurpose that IP when they buy the book. So that doesn't mean that like books don't become a kind of intellectual property or content. It just means it's a little bit messy about how it plays out. It's not all within one conglomerate house. There is one quote that I absolutely love, one of my favorite quotes in the book about this topic from Dick Snyder of Simon & Schuster in 1991. So he says this in 1991, and he's kind of anticipating the internet at this point already. And he says, we are not a publisher. He's talking about Simon & Schuster. He says, we are not a publisher. We are now a creator of copyrights for their exploitation in any medium or distribution system. That's amazingly prescient. Yeah. So, I mean, that speaks to exactly what you're saying, Eric. Like, people were thinking in the early 90s about how this book can become, you know, educational material or it can be, you know, a video game or it can be a movie. Well, that's what I'm just curious how that increasing IP exploitation, because to use some of your earlier examples, right? So I think The Day of the Locust might have been made into a film. I can't remember. But those Fitzgerald and West in these two examples, like they were not working on books that then became movies, right? It was just that they were also working on screenplays at the same time. And I'm wondering if this kind of fusion where the, let's say the book becomes or is understood to be the first stop on a chain of various forms of media exploitation in the 80s and 90s, 
actually really starts to shape what books get acquired. Because if we're increasingly thinking about the balance sheet, it's like, okay, we can get the book in and that'll make us this amount of money. But then the additional exploitation of that property will make us even more money. So therefore, it's better to have a book that we know, oh man, not only are readers going to buy this, but it will also fill movie theaters. People will you know, watch the TV show version and that sort of thing. It's because that the publisher often doesn't get all of those rights for acquisition, that acquisitions are not always thinking about those factors, okay. but it does affect how authors are thinking about subconsciously or consciously thinking about writing because their agent is the one who's telling them, think about the <laughs> fact that you could make, like the agent's the one who's being like, we could make piles of money if you think about writing this in the right way. What does happen in the 70s and 80s is something of the inverse of what you're talking about, Eric, which is novelizations. So one of the biggest books of the 70s was Love Story by Eric Segal, which actually started out as a screenplay that he wrote. And then he turned that screenplay into a novel. That novel sold an insane number of copies everyone was like oh maybe there's like great plots in screenplays that we can turn into books that we can sell a bunch of books of which is how danielle Steele became famous because her publisher dell gave her a screenplay and it was a ripoff of love story dell gave danielle Steele, who had written three books that had done fine a ripoff screenplay of love story and was like write this as a book we're going to put incredible amounts of marketing money behind you and we're going to make you famous. And like that's Daniel Steele's story is the novelization of his screenplay. That was 78. 77, you have this guy Lester Del Rey who essentially created fantasy as a genre that same year. Also was very smart and talked to George Lucas ahead of time and was like, hey, you've got this movie coming out, Star Wars. I want to do the novel version of that. Write us a novel of it. And that was like the second best-selling book of 1977, George Lucas's book version of Star Wars. And Del Rey, Lester Del Rey, created an imprint under his name with his wife, Judy Lynn Del Rey, was actually the leader of that, created Del Rey, the imprint. And that still exists up until the present as a sort of licensor. Like it licenses like all sorts of media narratives that they turn books into, into the, well into the, the 21st century. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the alternatives that popped up to the conglomerates, particularly since LARB is a nonprofit and very much an alternative to the New York literary scene. So at some point, people realize that there's other ways of funding the arts. Much of the time it had been through personal fortunes or heirs, but a literary nonprofit form begins to grow 80s, maybe earlier. 60s? Yeah, this was an incredible part of the story that I loved learning about and digging into and finding out exactly how we ended up with a nonprofit literary world, which didn't have to happen. It didn't have to happen at all. And I loved listening to you guys' interview with Lisa Lucas from some weeks back and about her experiences going from the nonprofit world to the corporate world. And that's a big part of my book, too, is thinking about you've got the for-profit conglomerate side of the business. And then you've got the nonprofit side. And then you have independent presses, which are often, as you say, Medea, funded by private wealth, which can be dangerous if you've got someone like Elizabeth Koch, who decides to turn Catapult into kind of her personal branding exercise one day. 
But it also can work really well in cases like New Directions or Grove Atlantic, where especially with those companies who have these great backlists that help sustain them now. But the nonprofit story. So about a decade before Andre Schifrin was fired by Alberta Vital, which was 1990, in 1980, that's kind of really the first time that people pull the fire alarm and are like, oh God, like, I think we're in trouble. And the Authors Guild in 77 actually like hosts this event to say, hey, can like the government get involved? Can we do some antitrust stuff? It's like the antitrust stuff that we saw Florence Pan do with the, I'm referring to this, the Penguin Random House, Simon Schuster attempt at merging that the Department of Justice shut down and on antitrust grounds. This has been something that authors have been calling for for nearly 50 years. That started in 77. And people were like, this conglomeration stuff's going to be bad for us. It's going to be bad for books. We need to do something. And what came out of this was at the end of the 70s, that's when people started to look around. In fact, this one guy in Minnesota named Jim Sitter started to look around and be like, hey, like dance, theater, opera, symphony, There was this movement in the 50s and 60s to get private funding and government funding to these other forms of the arts so that they could be somewhat divorced from the demands of the market and still operate. And Jim Setter wondered why this couldn't be the case for books. And so he started talking to Scott Walker, who was a poetry publisher he knew on Port Townsend, Washington, who was doing Grey Wolf books. People might be familiar with Grey Wolf Press. He started talking to this guy, Alan Kornblum, and his wife, Cinda Kornblum, down in Iowa City, who were doing a thing called Toothpaste that they moved up to the Twin Cities. Yeah, not a great name for a a press, but they moved it up to Twin Cities and changed the name to Coffee House. And a woman named Emily Buckwald in the Twin Cities, who was running a publisher called Milkweed Editions. And he started kind of talking to people who were doing other nonprofits art stuff and figuring out who, like, who pulled the strings? Where did the money come from? Who were the donors? He had dinner with Toni Morrison and she was in town and she was at the time like sitting on the council of the National Endowment for the Arts. And he started picking Toni Morrison's brain about like, how does the NEA work? And he started to realize that there was the potential for a, a massive movement for nonprofit publishers that started to cohere only really to cohere in the late 80s, early 90s. You have Dalkey Archive, you have Feminist Press, you have Arte Publico down in Houston. And it's in the early 90s that they start publishing fiction in addition to poetry and start to understand themselves coherently as a group. And this has been one of the most, to me, exciting aspects of the last couple of decades of publishing in the United States. I actually think the internet has been good and social media has been good in a lot of ways for these small presses, which don't necessarily need to sell like a ton of books in order to survive and thrive. But if they can find their committed audience, they can make it work. And so we've continued to see a growth of nonprofit publishers, Transit, Deep Vellum, Hub City. There are so many that are doing it and working. And we have like, for this reason, I think the 21st century, I think in 2023, we have a really vibrant books culture in this country because of people like Edwin Frank at NYRB and because of, you know, just all these people who are out there doing it, the archipelago books, folks. It's just on and on. It's been great. The other thing that I kind of wanted to get to as we wrap up is, and this is, it's a complicated story, both like emotionally and I think also when you try to sift through the economics of it, but is the, especially in the 21st century, 
the quote-unquote democratization of publishing and of criticism or kind of, let's say, like promotion of books. So this would happen in two main things. One is things like KDP, so Kindle Direct Publishing, which is an Amazon platform that allows people to, you write a book yourself, you don't even need to go to an editor. And this is especially good for niche kind of genre writers, I think is the main bread and butter of that sort of area where they, like I know, for example, that there's a lot of erotica is written and published directly to KDP. And these are the things that for listeners, you can download for 99 cents or something like that to get on your Kindle. So on the one hand, people would say that that has like a very democratizing effect that now anybody can publish. You don't have to be connected to the gatekeepers of literary culture, which would be primarily MFA programs that then act as like filters to agents and then on to publishers. The other thing that you address in the conclusion of the book, which I, I find really interesting, is the the way in which literary criticism or let's say reviews of literature have kind of been like they're once the provenance of like high-minded magazines, right? Or literary review supplements to major newspapers. But now that's kind of part of the soaring metrics of social media, right? As you have like TikTok's book talk or YouTube, booktube, right? And these are now these influencers who are social media people are a central target of literary publicists and maybe even more so than literary reviews or things like that, which exists now, my understanding is like primarily for prestige, right? And also like discourse, but that that may not be moving sales of as many books as say like a popular YouTuber. Can you talk a little bit about what the impact of that kind of democratization, both in the authorship, but also in the promotion of books has on the publishing industry in the present? Small question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think we're living in a moment where there are multiple book worlds existing simultaneously, and they operate very differently. And I think you've got, so on the one hand, we continue to have the conglomerate publishing industry has it began developing in the 70s and 80s and is in much a similar structure as it's been evolving toward all that time. And it's very hierarchical. It's very hard to break into. It's very opaque from the outside. It has certain conservative tendencies. There's a lot of nepotism involved and so on and so forth. That exists. And then you've got this massive world that you're referring to of self-publishing. That also is very, very, very hard to break into. And you've got There's like a very small percentage of people who succeed in that. And then there's a very long tail of people who's like only their mother reads the book. Mm. Um, And you've got, but it's small enough, like there's enough people doing it that the small number of people who can do it, there's like, you know, I don't know, dozens, if not hundreds of people who've like quit their full-time corporate jobs to become Kindle direct publishing authors. And what you're seeing now is those people have to produce so many books. Like some of these people write six, seven, eight, nine books in their micro genre a year. And to keep up that pace, they're drawing on the new large language models, ChatGPT, to help automate some of the writing so that they can speed up yet further the pace of the production of their books so that they can continue to make $150,000 a year as a self-published 
novelist. And book talk is a crucial form of getting the word out for some of these books. So you have the greatest seller of the 2020s, Colleen Hoover, was made on book talk. And book talk is, it is this phenomenon that it truly does sell more books than any other marketing and publicity venue. And so marketing and publicity staff at publishing houses need to try to get their books in the hands of these book talk folks. So um, there's democratization in, I would say neither of those spaces have actually affected something like democratization. Where I do see something like democratization is when people like get together in their smaller communities with the other people whose work they admire and they start publishing each other and they start developing. And if those communities in the best scenarios are inviting of other people, and this is like the kind of small press world that we were talking about a moment ago, where I do see like communities on Twitter, there's like kind of a lot of literary critics and writers and people who like have met each other through social media and are publishing each other's work and people are reading each other's work. And I think that's, where the most beautiful literary stuff is happening right now. Well, that seems like a great place for us to end. Thank you so much, Dan, for talking to us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We've been talking to Dan Sinekin. His new book is called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.